we rarely talk about imprisonment as a form of genocide and as a form of eugenics in itself. And when you look at who is being locked up with increasingly long sentences, you know, imprisonment is a form of sterilization in itself. You are therefore preventing a certain individual from the ability to have a family, from you're locking someone up for their reproductive capacity years, they are therefore unable to, you know, reproduce. And that all comes back to eugenics. You know, recently in the news, you know, the Kenosha sheriff last fall referred to imprisonment as a form of keeping, quote, black men from having children. These are what we are seeing today in our society, policing, imprisonment, access to healthcare. This is modern day eugenics at work. And our prison system is a perfect example of how this still operates. Hi, my name is Frances Cohan, and I'm this year's Prison and Justice Writing Fellow. On March 15th, 2021, our program had the honor of hosting a screening of the new film, Belly of the Beast, a 2020 documentary directed by Erica Cohen. Erica is a Peabody and Emmy Award-winning director and producer and co-founder of the Idlewild Films and Corporation Company. Filmed, researched, and produced over seven years, Belly of the Beast exposes modern-day eugenics and reproductive injustice in California women's prisons. I had the opportunity to watch Belly of the Beast in this private screening for our prison writing mentor community and came away harrowed, captivated, and moved. It was a true pleasure and profound learning experience to listen to the post-screening conversation between Erica and Mary Concepcion, Prison and Justice Writing Volunteer Coordinator, to dive with the director beyond the film's content and explore the technical and creative processes behind it. In fact, the dialogue is so valuable, we decided to bring it to a wider audience through this Works of Justice podcast. The film itself centers the narrative of Kelly Dillon, who, incarcerated at the age of 19 as a survivor of domestic and gang violence, was sterilized without her knowledge or consent. Kelly is now the co-chairperson for the Empowerment Congress Southeast Neighborhood Council, where she advocates for violence prevention and intervention programs. Belly of the Beast explores Kelly's personal and advocacy relationship with Cynthia Chandler, a social entrepreneur, activist, academic, an attorney who focuses on human and health rights for vulnerable populations. In this interview, Erica and Mary spoke about the implications of forced sterilization behind bars, how incarceration is itself a tool for eugenics and population control, and the challenges of defining consent in a space characterized by its lack of autonomy. They also discussed what it means to produce a trauma-informed film and how to navigate and think creatively about obstacles presented by censorship and lack of access to information. We hope you find this conversation as moving as we did. We encourage you to learn more about and support Belly of the Beast by watching and sharing the film, which you can find at bellyofthebeastfilm.com. Thank you for listening. Like everyone said, this film was really, really like, it hit me really hard when I watched it. Um, it touches on, you know, themes of eugenics and um, sterilization, population control, medical consent. All of these themes are really central to your kind of retelling of the California Department of Corrections Crimes Against Women in this film. I was really impressed with how you were kind of able to unravel all of these different really huge systems through your directing and your storytelling. Could you talk a little bit about what that process of selecting what narratives and what kind of like individuals you would follow? Um, we know that the story really centers around Kelly and Cynthia and the work of Justice Now, but yeah, if you could tell us a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, first of all, thank you so much for that introduction and thank you for sharing a little bit about who each of you are and I'm just so honored to be in your presence and the amazing work that you do. So um, thank you for, for hosting this conversation. I think it might be helpful to, to go back in time how I started this subject matter. I had the opportunity to meet Cynthia Chandler in 2010 through a mutual friend and was so incredibly inspired by her compassionate release work. She was the first attorney in California to get someone out of prison under compassionate release. And she had also co-founded Justice Now, which, you know, at the time was an incredibly revolutionary organization. And still, you know, the, the thought of having board members currently incarcerated really informing strategy and informing policy from the inside out um, as opposed to the outside in, which is the way that so many organizations work and really centering those who are directly impacted in the decision-making is so critical to the way that we all should be doing our advocacy. And they had a campaign specifically called the Let Our Families Have a Future campaign, which essentially exposed the multiple ways that prisons destroy the basic fundamental human right to family one of the most heinous, of course, being the illegal sterilizations, primarily targeting women of color. And to me, immediately, that screamed eugenics. Um, as a Jewish woman, the phrase never again was always in the back of my mind. And when I learned about this different kind of genocide that was happening through imprisonment, through forced sterilization behind bars, I knew that I wanted to get involved some way, somehow, and to really work collaboratively in challenging modern day eugenics. And so the initial idea came from my direct service work. I became a volunteer legal advocate, providing direct services for over 150 people inside California's women's prisons. And from that work, I began collaborating with people inside on a project that would ultimately become Belly of the Beast. And the incredible human rights documentation work that happens inside prison was something to really document and something to really chronicle. Because, you know, when we think of prisons, I mean, they are incredibly heinous, incredibly um, punitive places, but there's also so much beauty and so much power and so much resilience that can at the same time be highlighted while critiquing that system, really centering and empowering the voices of those who are doing this incredible work who often don't get recognized for the incredible activism that they are doing. And so the idea was really to chronicle that work and to be able to document how the human rights abuses that they were uncovering how this information was funneled out through this underground system of activists because the prison of course didn't want this information getting out, didn't want this information exposed. And that changed a bit after I had the opportunity to meet Kelly. We met a couple of years into the process and at the time I met her, she was working as the incredible community interventionist that she is in Los Angeles doing gang intervention work and domestic violence prevention work. And at that point in her life, had really set the sterilization issue aside, was very much focused on her own career, community empowerment, establishing her own nonprofit, but wanted to support this project behind the scenes. And Kelly's involvement as an advisor kind of in those early years was critical. I mean, we talked a lot about how to establish 
that kind of transparency between free world populations and incarcerated populations and how to really tell this story in a way that placed audiences in these visceral, vulnerable, uncomfortable places and how to really break down these stereotypes and the misinformation that we're fed about imprisonment and the how you know imprisonment is often depicted in this like overdramatized sensationalized way and about a couple of years after that the center for investigative reporting launched their investigation and released a very controversial series of articles reporting done by Corey Johnson and that made a huge splash, you know, for the first time, this was the national conversation. For the first time, there was really potential for legislation, potential for hearings, and Kelly got called in to testify yet again on behalf of so many other people who wouldn't otherwise be able to testify and to really advocate not only for herself, but others. And that was the moment that Kelly and I decided that we would begin filming her leading up to the process when she testifies for the first time in front of the California Senate. And the more and more we filmed, the more clear it became that the film really needed to center around her story and her relationship with attorney Cynthia Chandler. Because, you know, if it wasn't for Kelly in the first place, we wouldn't even be here today. There wouldn't be a film. There wouldn't have been the Center for Investigative Reporting's work. Um, this issue wouldn't be uncovered. And so it's really thanks to her and her selfless advocacy for not only her, but others and uncovering this and working diligently to get to the root of these systemic issues. You know, there wouldn't be a film. There wouldn't be a story. Yeah, that really gets honestly um, at the heart of my next question, which is kind of about Kelly herself. You know, just through the screen, you can kind of feel she's just this amazing person. And I was really struck by the way that we got to see her throughout time. Like, I think the sense of time in the film also was just like, this is years and years of someone's life. And having to retell her story, you know, to different doctors, lawyers, in her home, being in the courtroom again and again, like in all these different circumstances, um, it made me think a lot about for survivors of violence, like, retelling your story oftentimes means reliving your trauma. And I was curious with a film that obviously touches so much on centering survivors and their agency, um, how the film was able to kind of create a space for her to relive that um, safely and support her through that, knowing that she was a huge part of, of the film and of having to tell her story. One of the things that Kelly often talks about is that yes, every time she tells the story, it's re-traumatizing and ideally the film lives on so that Kelly doesn't continuously need to talk about it. And that the trailer, you know, lives on as a way for people who don't have the time to watch the film, get a brief snippet of what happened so that it's not the continuously retelling of that trauma. And that also perhaps other survivors don't need to retell their trauma as well. One of the important parts of making this film was that it was really survivor led. You know, if a, if a survivor wanted to speak about what happened to them and then, you know, decided, you know, two sentences in that they weren't interested in speaking more that they ultimately at the last minute wanted to not be featured in the film or wanted to at the last minute add something in the film that that was okay, that there was the time frame that enabled the film to have the breadth and depth and the space to provide 
you know, an experience that allowed people to continuously think about what it meant to participate, decide if they wanted to participate, and then, you know, decide at the very end if they wanted to have what they participated in be featured in the film. And up until the very last moment, you know, we were corresponding with folks inside about how they wanted to be listed in the credits. If they wanted to even, you know, be listed at all, or if they wanted to have a pseudoname or remain anonymous, or if they were comfortable with ultimately what ended up in the film. And that's, I think, incredibly important in telling these stories. And, you know, as Kelly describes it, it's being trauma-informed and really throughout the process, centering the, the experiences of those who are directly impacted and holding that dear. Definitely. I think that really shone through. And it, even hearing about that stuff behind the scenes is really empowering. You know, as, as people who work with writers, like we're oftentimes holding people's stories quite literally um, and having to kind of be in that space of how do we help you do what you need to do and make sure that you can communicate that with us. Um, without stepping on anyone's toes. And, and again, with the idea of like trauma-informed also going along with this idea of like agency. Um, so yeah, thank you. I think the film in general for me, where I learned a lot outside of the particular narratives was also kind of getting to hear more about women in prison and women's prisons. The fact that this story really centers around like one of the biggest, if not the biggest prison um, for women in California. And the kind of statistic of like women of color being the fastest growing population in America, even when so many narratives um, around mass incarceration center around men, um, center around men who are convicted of like drug offenses and violent crimes, you know, this idea of the war on drugs. And this film kind of hones in on the fact that like among even these women, the majority of them are survivors of domestic violence and gender-based violence, you know, like 92% is an insane statistic. And it just made me wonder like, why is this not the story of mass incarceration all along, right? Like, why is it that in the story of, you know, talking about this kind of systemic oppression, even in that story about the margin, women are still marginalized. Yeah, just wondering about your take on that. Yeah, that's, that's why Justice Now's work was so revolutionary in the beginning. It was at the intersection of gender justice, racial justice, and prison abolition. And you see the, the implications of how even reform efforts create a ripple effect of how, you know, there's retaliation that folks experience inside. And then you have to pass new legislation to help remedy the retaliation. And then you have to pass new legislation to fix that legislation. That it's this consistent cycle of how the, the system is so broken and it doesn't work. And when we talk about imprisonment and mass incarceration, I think oftentimes Obviously, women and, and transgender people are, are often left out of the conversation. And even taking that a step farther, we rarely talk about imprisonment as a form of genocide and as a form of eugenics in itself. And when you look at who is being locked up with increasingly long sentences, you know, imprisonment is a form of sterilization in itself. You are therefore preventing a certain individual from the ability to have a family, from you're locking someone up for their reproductive capacity years, they are therefore unable to, you know, reproduce. And that all comes back to eugenics. You know, recently in the news, you know, the Kenosha sheriff last fall referred to imprisonment as a form of keeping, quote, Black men from having children. You know, these are, these 
are what we are seeing today in our society, policing, imprisonment, access to healthcare. This is modern day eugenics at work. And our prison system is a perfect example of how this still operates. Definitely. And I think this is something that I also wanted to bring in the kind of issues around COVID in prisons, um, because it's something that we've actually like on our team been really thinking about. We have like this newsletter called Temperature Check um, that's kind of a rapid response on COVID in prisons. And the latest issue just went out and it's all about the vaccination rollout. Um, so we've kind of been covering a lot of the mismanagement around containing COVID, treating COVID, even like, you know, people being able to tell their family members if they're sick or recover and then get reinfected. Like these really horrible stories coming out of prisons all over the country. Um, we're able to kind of see that this idea of like, you know, modern day eugenics in prisons isn't like, you know, some theory and it isn't this thing that's just about sterilization in California. It's like, there's actually kind of this concerted movement to think of folks that are incarcerated as undeserving of health and, and undeserving of like their well being being prioritized by the people who are supposed to be taking care of them, you know, while they serve out some kind of term that's about justice, you know, whether or not we believe that, um, the reality is that people are under the care of the state and the state is actively failing them when it comes to protecting them from so many things. Um, and it, it kind of made me think, again, this convergence of the two things, like what does the future of healthcare in prisons look like, right? Like are prisons sustainable in any way? Like, is it ultimately a death trap? Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. I mean, when we talk about access to healthcare during the pandemic, I mean, in the free world, it's challenging. It's very clear that certain populations have access to healthcare and certain populations don't. It's modern day eugenics at work. And then you multiply that by a hundred and that's what you're seeing play out in prisons today. You know, if society doesn't value people who are locked up, society uses imprisonment for any and all social problems and then doesn't give people inside access to basic human rights. I mean, this is, this is a fundamental human right. We are not talking about excellent healthcare. We are talking about adequate healthcare and not even that is being met. I mean, what's happening in prisons today is heinous and the amount of people who are dying in prison as a result of COVID is is heinous, it's preventable. You said prisons as a, as a death trap. I mean, I don't believe our prison system works. I don't believe that our reform efforts to better healthcare inside prison will ultimately work. I don't believe that this system is just, and I don't believe this system can be reformed. No, definitely. I think like one of the things that we talk about in this temperature check issue is this idea of like decarceration having to be one of the approaches for like responding to a public health crisis and like how that actually has to be like an integral part, not just thinking about like, how do we get more vaccines out? How quickly can we get people vaccinated? But like actually releasing people from prison can save someone's life. And like, if this is something that we know is true, doesn't that mean that you kind of have a moral duty to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is the first time that, you know, the conversation of abolition has been really a part of our like language. Um, you know, decarcerate. We didn't really start having these conversations before the pandemic. And I hope these conversations continue to happen beyond the pandemic as well. Definitely. I think it's, it's really coming at a time when things kind of have reached a fever pitch. And, you know, the film really kind of takes you through the fact that like, this has actually always been happening. Like, I think for me, it was really jarring to see 
Um, obviously the film takes place over seven years and we see like in the early 2000s that first clip of Kelly, the filmed video of her just recounting her story from that point on, like it's so jarring to see her go through all these changes and like, you know, have her life circumstances change, get out of prison, you know, be with her sons again. And like, all of this is still happening to her to see her like in 2019, like all of this is still happening to her. Um, it really kind of sets in stone that idea of like, yeah, these systems are really failing and people's lives get caught up there for 10, 15, 20 years, if not more. Yeah, so my next question was actually about that in particular too, like the fact that it was filmed over seven years and I am not a documentary whiz or film person in the technical sense, but um, I was really interested in what it was like to make a film kind of through the walls um, and what the experience of, you know, in our work, we're no strangers to the difficulty of like access and transparency in prisons, even when unrelated to issues like healthcare. Um, so I'm curious about what that process was like and what, what did that entail? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, this has been a, a decade in the making, seven years of, of active filming and, you know, over a decade of reporting and research and development and editing. And there were so many twists and turns in, in this entire process. I mean, one of the things that was so important about making this film is that it was always made in collaboration with and for people in prison. And so what that meant from day one is ensuring that people inside would have access to the film. And the only way that folks inside would have access to this film is through a PBS broadcast. As many people know, PBS is one of the only consistent channels that people inside prison have access to. So we had to find a way to make that happen. We had to find a way to ensure that the campaign to end sterilization abuse would be preserved had to find a way that people's legal cases could continue, that their privacy would be respected. The potential for retaliation um, was always a central conversation, major creative conversations about how we were going to show this world behind walls that we didn't have access to or continuously had throughout the process, continuous consent, continuous conversations about how this film would look and feel even down to who would be the musical voice of the film. You know, if you could have anyone be the musical voice of this film, who would it be? And everyone hands down said Mary J. Blige. So then we had to figure out a way to get Mary J. Blige involved, which was, you know, is a beautiful story in itself. But always, always being, you know, creatively imaginative about how to one, communicate with folks inside. And through my legal advocacy work, I was very much in touch with, with folks who are involved with the film and who weren't. How to make a film creatively with and for people inside prison and then how to distribute that. Um, and we're still you know, thinking up innovative ways of how the film can live on within prisons across the US. But I will say that you know, some of the challenges surrounding access actually provided us with a creative opportunity to reimagine how we visualize imprisonment and to really use imagery that contrasted freedom and confinement and you know, memory and passage of time. And because our team didn't have access to some of the spaces like an interior cell or an interior doctor's office at the prison or you know, a surgical room where the sterilizations were taking place, we had the ability to shoot it from many different ways and to recreate this environment, which would enable 
audiences to be placed in these vulnerable, uncomfortable spaces, what it would feel like to be handcuffed to a gurney being wheeled into a surgical operating room, what it would feel like to be naked waiting to be examined by a doctor who's employed by the prison where your daily existence is threatened by force, your legs are dangling from this exam room table, so vulnerable, so intimate. And it really begs the question, is informed consent even possible within these coercive environments? And so those are the creative like opportunities that actually came from these restrictions. And at the same time, making this film because of the lack of transparency, because of the lack of access, was incredibly difficult. Everything had to be fact-checked. Everything had to be bulletproof. And access to medical records, access to you know, reporting, access to documents that were essential, getting those was near impossible. The statistic that you see in the film, 1400 sterilizations performed between 1997 and 2013, that took us years to get. That took us years. And in concluding the film, you know, a lot of times people want to know, is this happening in other states? And so we sent Freedom of Information Act requests to dozens of states across the country. And of course, got a lot of responses back that, you know, we don't carry this information or we don't have access to this information. But we know of at least eight other states that allow sterilization procedures under certain circumstances. And in speaking with other organizations across the country that do direct service work with people inside women's prisons, we know that this is happening, but we don't know to what degree because of the layers of secrecy and privacy that these institutions are able to hide behind. It was so jarring, I think, for me to to see that scene that you were just describing where um, like people's legs were dingling from in front of an exam room. It was just, it's one of those moments where you really see the kind of visual of the phrase, like people being more than their number and like how the state tries to really like dehumanize folks in big and small ways. And like, you know, a visual like that is so universalizing because like who hasn't sat at a, you know, at a medical table in that way. And and I, I completely agree with a lot of the, I think complexity that the film really brought around this idea of consent. And um, I remember one of the scenes where they're kind of going over like, well, did you tell the women that you were gonna do this? Did you get consent for like only if they're found cancerous cells or, or you know, all these different stipulations. And everyone's kind of, you know, dancing around the idea of like, is this even a setting where people are safe enough to know what their consent would mean? Or if they're even allowed to consent, right? Like these ideas about who, who is keeping you safe, right? If you say no, will there be retaliation? And like, is that doctor actually even care about your well-being if they're employed by the same, again, as you said, like the same folks that are profiting off of your imprisonment and thinking about you as like part of a budget, right? Like, I think that for me, that was super jarring. This idea of the state needs to save money. So, you know, somehow that logic gets trickled down into let's do all these four sterilizations. It's like, who, who ends up being on the chopping block in a state, but like, right, it's just like a, a crazy situation. Totally. Yeah. Um, but I just want to talk about the end of the film a little bit, or like what to me was one of the ends of the film, which is one of my favorite parts of the movie when we get to see Kelly at her first graduation. You know, she kind of talks about like not having able to have that moment at all these other benchmarks, but getting to celebrate with her family. And we kind of get to see her just joyous in a film that is not joyous in a lot of ways. 
And I was just wondering, you know, why I felt important to include that in the place that it was. And also like, that's not the end of the film. Um, but again, it, it felt to me like the kind of culmination of something really important with Kelly's character, who I just got very attached to throughout the film. And I was just like ecstatic to see, get that kind of moment, especially with her sons. Yeah, I mean, for me, the film could have been three and a half, four, five hours. And I'll be honest, the first cut, the first few cuts of the film, I was very attached to that because, um, you know, I, I thought it was very important to show in the deposition footage that you were referencing earlier, you know, one of the most poignant moments is Kelly asks, can I hope? You know, they say, do you have plans after, you know, what are your plans for the future? And she said, can I hope? And that, I mean, that just goes to the, goes towards the immense dehumanization that people in prison experience that she would even have to question, can I hope? But from an early age, Kelly knew, you know, you hear her talk about that she wants to work with people who have been impacted by domestic violence and she wants to help, you know, young teens and also reconnect with her family. Then you see her, you see her doing what she intended to do. And, you know, imprisonment, took her on, on a detour. You know, the prison system is meant to break people down. It is meant to stop people. It is meant to say your life is not valued. And to have someone who is really continuing despite that tremendous dehumanization and to have someone who is such a brilliant spark of life and support for so many other people and an advocate for so many other people, that's what she's dedicated her life to. And to see her experience that joy that had been taken, you know, tried to be taken away from her, the ability to experience success and joy in life, that's essential. It's, she's not just a name. She is not just a number. She's a, an incredible individual who, I mean, an entire film could be made on the amazing life that she leads and how she inspires others. Kelly's brilliant. And that's one of my favorite scenes in the film too, is watching her achieve and experience and, you know, celebrate. Celebrate so much despite how many challenges she faced. Yeah, definitely. I think it, it ended on a kind of like aspirational note in a lot of ways with the chunk that came after kind of talking about like her um, saying like, we're going to continue this fight. Like this isn't the only state that this is happening in. I, I love also the scene where um, Cynthia is talking about, you know, this is the culmination of a lot of her work at Justice Now. It, it does feel like getting the bill passed um, was an end for them and for their work. But that, you know, part of the work is also like leaving something for other people to pick up, right? So knowing that this goes on for a really long time, but like our lives are finite. And I think there was something that I really loved too about getting to see that, you know, this is one film and we could have infinite number of films about all of the work that people are doing in similar organizations and like, you know, really just holding it down for each other for like a decade working on something like this. Um, and it was just really inspiring and I really loved that. But yeah, just kind of a closing question. I was just wondering like if you've been working on any other projects during the pandemic or since the film and sort of just like what's next? Thank you for that. I just have to say, you know, back to your previous question, it was so important 
you know, the bill passing was a celebration. It was a culmination of a lot of work. And as you mentioned, it's not the end. And Kelly's graduation is a culmination of a lot of work, but it's not the end. And it's not her happy ending. And the reality is she says, you know, she hasn't received her happy ending. It's not a happy ending. So while the film couldn't be wrapped up neatly with a bow, you know, there were celebratory moments and we needed to inspire people to help join this fight. It's not just Kelly, it's not just Cynthia doing this David and Goliath battle against the Department of Corrections. It's all of us, it's all of us who need to get involved in challenging modern day eugenics and white supremacy. And it was important, you asked like, you know, why was that not the ending? Because the fight continues. And you see the effects of this reform effort, the bill being passed, people inside experience retaliation, denial of any reproductive health care. This is the reality in which we live. And this is the reality in which the system functions. And I think that leaving people with um, a hope for reparations, which really is key for accountability, it ensures that these abuses don't continue to occur by holding the state and state actors accountable um, for this violence and these heinous human rights abuses. And um, if folks are interested in, in getting involved in the reparations movement, they can actually sign the petition for reparations on our website, bellyofthebeastfilm.com. And I will say, you know, having this film being released in this time has been incredibly urgent, timely, inspiring for a lot of reasons, because I think as we're examining modern day eugenics and systemic and institutionalized racism from so many different angles, this film really speaks to that as a part of the broader conversation that highlights these injustices and calls for immediate reparation. And this has been primarily my focus. I had the ability to create a beautiful short film in collaboration with a family after you know, 15 years of housing instability, they secure an apartment in San Francisco at the eve of the pandemic. And the film plays as a, as a, as a love poem to these parents' children, young parents and their children as a kind of an offering during this time. And that's been very beautiful and will be released soon. It's called What You'll Remember. Amazing. Thank you so much, Erica, for coming tonight and for sharing so candidly about the film and the process. Um, this has been wonderful. And I will be recommending this film to everyone that I know, as I already have. I think it's, yeah, it's really phenomenal. And as you said, super timely for um, everything that's happening. And yeah, again, thank you so much. Thank you. This was lovely. So I appreciate you having me on. This podcast episode was written and hosted by Prison and Justice Writing Volunteer Coordinator Mary Concepcion, with guidance from director Kate Meisner, manager Robbie Pollock, and myself, Francis Cohan, Prison and Justice Writing Fellow. Thank you for listening. I encourage you all to watch and share Belly of the Beast, more information about which you can find at bellyofthebeastfilm.com.